Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. And boy, we got a conversation for you today. Uh, and if you've been tracking along, then you'll know we've been talking about um, the mega church and, and a lot of the complicated, difficult and traumatic stories that have emerged in recent times. Uh, but I guess as, as the conversation is unfolding, we are, we are realizing in many respects that, it, that it's more than just a conversation about one or two spaces, um, and you know, I guess, I guess that's been a theme from the start, perhaps. But it's but it's only growing as as we continue to talk, and are realizing that this is opening up all sorts of stuff for people in terms of their journey, uh, maybe in toxic religious spaces, and so um, just as we continue to talk, there's more and more to talk about. Uh, Shane is taking a break from the conversation this week, and instead, what we have is um, an amazing conversation, I think. With, with two women, Nicole Connor and Jess Holdaway. Uh, as you'll hear, Nicole is a, is a narrative therapist, so works a lot helping people process and navigate. Uh, one of the things is, is religious trauma. Uh, Jess herself is someone who's experienced megachurch life as a young person, and then as you'll hear, experienced you know, burnout, trauma, and has gone on a journey of processing that. And so together the three of us have a conversation about, about that journey, about what it looks like uh, when we experience toxic culture in, in religious spaces. Um, we talk about gaslighting. We talk about the, the systemic nature of some of this. We talk about the, the temptation to blame ourselves and ten, instead of to see some of the challenges within the systems that have been built. We, um, we talk about what trauma looks like in the body, how to recognize it, how to notice it, and what to do with that and how to journey through it. We talk about how to pay attention to the red flags that might be present within the community you find yourself in. What are some things you might be able to notice to say, is this a healthy space or not a healthy space? Um, there's just, there's so much in this. It's a long conversation again, as is becoming a habit on in the shift at the moment. Um, but, but man, I just feel like this conversation in particular is something that I really hope meets people uh, where they're at and where they need it. And so if that's you, then then this conversation, I hope, is something really helpful as a part of your own journey of processing. And, uh, and if it's not you personally, then I really, my real hope is that it helps you understand others and what they might need uh, as, as we collectively, I think, and that's, I guess, one of the things that's coming out of this present moment, that we are collectively journeying, journeying through some of this, especially here in New Zealand and, and maybe in Australia as well. Uh, but I know that we are then not just doing that in isolation from, from the many years of people experiencing this kind of stuff. And some of the stories I hear in, in emails that come in, uh, you know, I, uh, people talking about their journey uh, 15, 20 years ago that they still haven't been able to process and make sense of. And so um, we are, we're in this together somehow, even though this is like a podcast that goes out to your ears and we're continuing to look at ways in which we can create and foster more connectivity um, more possibility for a sense of solidarity and not feeling alone. Um, as always, you can get in touch with us, feedback at intheshift.com. If you're wanting to contribute to helping make In The Shift um, continue to be a possibility and to keep it sustainable for us, um, and there certainly has been you know, an increase in demand, which, which is good, I think. You know, these are conversations I've been wanting to have and have in some ways been having over the years, but but we can see the real need in it at the moment. So if you want to support 
somehow what In The Shift is doing, then you can go to patreon.com slash In The Shift and you can chuck us a few bucks a month there just to help keep this thing going. And, um, and we're also just exploring how we can perhaps use that as a space to create a little bit more community with for, for people who maybe don't want to be commenting publicly on stuff but are wanting to find a safe space to be able to share and talk with each other. So we'll keep working on, on ways we think we might be able to do that. So, but if, you, if you're there and you're thinking, how could I, how could I help this whole thing keep moving? Then, um, then patreon.com slash in the shift and you'll find a way to just support with a, with a few bucks a month, um, which would mean a lot to me and I'm very grateful to the people who are currently uh, doing that. Um, I think that's all there is to be said for now. There continue to be many things coming in from people that tell us we've got lots more to talk about. So so the conversations will keep rolling. Um, and for now, here is, I think, you know, what you will, I'm sure, find to be a insightful, um, moving, compassionate, wise and important conversation uh, with Nicole and with Jess. So um, this is episode 61 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. So today on the podcast, I'm joined by not one but two guests, Nicole Connor and Jess Holdaway. Welcome to both of you. Hello. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> so I'll let them tell a, a bit of their own story, but just by way of brief introduction, Nicole lives in Melbourne and has a background in ministry in large Pentecostal type spaces, but since leaving that kind of role in 2010 has retrained and now works in narrative practice, including therapy and supervision and organizational consulting. And a lot of the people that she works with increasingly in recent times are those who are seeking to reclaim their lives from religious ideologies and practices that have had a negative or traumatic impact on their lives. So um, so that's Nicole. So good to have you bringing some of that expertise to this conversation, Nicole. Thank you. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you so much. Now, Jess, it should be said, full disclosure, was a student of mine back in the day, back from when we were both mega, mega as, and, uh, and she's about an hour north of where I am, up in Mangafai. And from her young teenage years, was immersed within an Auckland mega church where I was, and was also on staff for a time in her early 20s, and has since left, we might say, um, survived perhaps, and now works on a variety of projects and uses her skill in graphic design and is a mum of two small humans, which is a challenging task, I'm sure. So thanks, Jess, and thanks for being willing to share some of your story today. Thank you. I'm excited and nervous, naturally. naturally yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Nicole, if we can start with you then, perhaps, can you give us a bit more insight into the kind of work that you do, a little bit of why you ended up doing that, and and even a little of how it connects to your own story as well. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, look, maybe just a little bit of my background to help understand the journey be helpful. I um, was born in Germany um, in a non-religious home, so to speak. You know, there was an idea about God, but it was held very far away. Um, we then migrated to South Africa. So I was an immigrant, a little girl, an immigrant who could not speak English or Afrikaans or all the languages that were spoken in South Africa. And the reason I'm mentioning all this is um, it's interesting to consider what leads us into conservative 
tight religious settings. Mm. In my case, Pentecostal setting. It's really interesting to begin to our own deconstruction process and what pulls us into fundamentalism. Because to me, you know, so much of Pentecostalism is actually fundamentalism in color. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's just vibrant, but it holds to the same absolute ideas. Mm. Um, so as an as a child, an immigrant, and you know, having beautiful parents, but both of them deeply affected by um, the trauma they experienced in World War II. And grandparents the same. So really, in a sense, now looking back, I had my entire, you know, nuclear family, so to speak, had PTSD. And what that means for a child. And then you add the immigration. Mm. And I think the more I begin to deconstruct that and talk about this with clients, we realize how how um, alluring and how welcoming fundamentalism is when you've come from a space of experience chaos. Mm. It offers black and white answers. You know, it offers a sense of safety. It, you know, in Pentecostalism, there's this whole idea about the leader being the expert, the shepherd, you know, all the, the words that we use. So there's this welcome it, it, it's it's like you find yourself and you kind of breathe in it for a while. Um, so that was my journey into fundamentalism, mm. Pentecostal fundamentalism in South Africa as now as a teenager and my parents as well. So, you know, all of us ended up giving our hearts to Jesus. And, you know, for, for a lot of that, that was a very positive experience. Um, then we moved back to Germany, long story, and then to Australia where I ended up in Pentecostal church in Melbourne. And that was a church back then that was very affected by the holiness movement, that mm -hmm. sort of purity codes. Um, so highly conservative, but vibrant. That's why I always call it fundamentalism in color. And there were many good things about the space. And I think it's important to keep, you know, those thoughts aligned. However, as time went on and as I, um, you know, stepped into different roles in leadership, something began to shift for me. I, and I can't even put my finger to this day on what it, it exactly was, but there was some a protest that was happening inside me about some of the things that I was observing and complicit to. But can I say that the church I was involved in in Melbourne, I would say, by by standards today, actually tried very hard to remain accountable and to treat people well. I think that's an important mm. thing to say because, you know, toxic religion or abuse can happen in all types of churches. Yeah. The, the mega doesn't make it necessarily abusive because some of the clients that I speak to come from very small churches and have had horrendous experiences, but their experience has not been highlighted through the media. Sure. So. Yeah. I think church size does not necessarily, you know, dictate that it's going to be a problematic culture does. Mm. Understanding, accountability, we'll talk more about that. Sorry. <laughs> Sidetrack, rabbit trail, back to the thing. So, um, <laughs> so these um, frustrations grew for me to the point where in 2010, I felt like I didn't like who I was becoming in that setting. I didn't like what was required of leadership in Pentecostal settings where it very much is the leader has the answer or, you know, there are certain things you have to believe or not believe to be in order to be in leadership that could no longer fitted me. Mm. So I 
now I look back and I see it as a protest movement. I resigned, went back into marketing for a while, and then um, stumbled onto narrative therapy and practices, and it turned my world upside down. And I now begin to realize how it actually helped me. Narrative therapy, in a sense, helped me deconstruct because narrative is built on the idea that the person is the expert of their story and that they have all the knowledges they need to make life meaningful for them. And I'm giving you the simplistic mm. version of that. And so in some ways, in many ways, it's totally juxtaposed to some of the conservative religious ideas where, you know, the expert sits outside or in Pentecostalism, the expert sits in the leadership of the church space. And so I love the fact that this empowered people. It allowed people to own their stories, to own what brings meaning, and it also allows them to process some of the problems that have come into their lives. And narrative would say that the person's not the problem. The problem is the problem. Mm. And it locates the problem in culture, context, society, things that have formed a, a problem that that person now lives with the effects of, but they are not the problem. Mm. So by externalizing a problem like that, somebody can look at it objectively and not like sometimes in religious context, it, you know, it's innate somewhere. It's like, oh, something within me is problematic. Rather in narrative, we go, no, there's a problem and you're living with the effects of it, but let's externalize it. Let's look at it. You know, let's begin to deconstruct it. And then let's also look at, what are some of the hopes you have for life? What are some of the things that you put meaning to? And so to begin to rebuild their lives based on their stories that they narrate of what is meaningful. It's not fantastical stories. These are stories, lived experience stories, mm. skills and knowledges that we are observing. Mm. But I've talked a long time here, Michael. Sorry. So it gives you a little <laughs> bit of a, an idea of where I came from sure. and what I'm doing there. No, it's really good. There's lots there that uh, we could pick up on, but I think we probably will as we go along. Uh, even just that that idea of the way in which in particular, I think, religion, spirituality, um, complicates that idea of the problem being external because so much of our religious and spiritual language is internal. Uh, and so so it's, it's quite difficult, I think, for people to be able to sort of pass out, you know, uh, what is what is in me and actually, mm. and, and this, the, this sort of self-blame and the, and the, the, yeah. the ways in which we become our own critic and even the voice of God in our, in our own, or what we feel like is the voice of God inside us becomes one of our you know, strongest critics as well. And that, that's a big part of uh, the challenge that many people, I think, are, are navigating. Um, yes, thank you. It's good. Good. Uh, Jess, um, I, again, gave a little a brief, a very brief summary of your story. But do you want to talk a bit about sort of how you came in? Because these stories are really interesting, you know, to, to even as Nicole was speaking and I was thinking about, although I grew up in Pentecostalism from very young, uh, I did you know, grew up in a very small town, kind of small church Pentecostalism and and was, you know, relatively on the margins because of that because it was a bit odd and weird to be a church kid in, in the place that I was. And so when I found this church that that um, that was big and appealing, uh, in that case, perhaps the size did help me feel like I was a part of something, you know, significant in the way. So the, the, our own stories and, and the insecurities that we carry or the or the, the the, the, the already pre-existing context of our lives. Um, yeah, it's such an interesting um, and important thing to consider. Anyway, uh, Jess, do you want to talk a bit about, about your sort of journey in, into and, and perhaps out of <laughs> the, that, kind of, um, that kind of church for you? Yeah, sure. Um, 
I mean, when similarly, when, when um, we left South Africa, we immigrated to New Zealand when I was 10 years old. Um, and when we sort of landed here, we had left, I had left some pretty important family members behind and my family unit was sort of looked very different to um, how it had been operating. Um, and so when I came to New Zealand, it was, it felt really fragmented. Um, and of course, we were starting from scratch with our entire community. Um, and I started attending high school and someone at high school invited me along to youth group when I was 13. Um, and for about three years when we'd first immigrated, I had endeavored to find a community of people that I felt at home in. And when I stepped into this youth group, I had felt at home. Mm. Um, like at the time, I would have considered myself an extrovert. So stepping into a space that was really expressive with music and um, art and fashion and personalities um, and all of that really felt to me. Um, and it, it felt like, oh, I can finally have a space where I could come to and express who I am, the way that I'd like to be. And through that time, um, I started attending regularly at youth groups and then on Sundays and sort of my commitment grew over time. Um, and then I started um, holding small leadership roles on services, whether that would be um, helping newcomers feel welcome, whether that would be welcoming people and or um, taking new salvations out the back and having chats with them about, you know, how they've, given their life to Jesus and then, you know, on and on. And it sort of snowballed into um, full-on youth leadership and running a small youth group out at the East Branch. And then um, it continued to grow to the point where I was employed as the youth coordinator at um, church and was PA to the youth pastors. Um, so it was actually about nine years that I was quite heavily committed and, and involved in the church um, and then on top of this I was also studying and did two years at the college bible college um, and we can dive into that later on if we like <laughs> <laughs> um, and essentially when I worked there I was also um, actually completing my theology degree through um, a third-party university um, which received some pushback by my pastors. Um, and I also had gotten engaged over that time. My workload increased to the point where my body couldn't um, keep up. So essentially my body was protesting mm. massively. Um, and that was my main catalyst for leaving um, because I actually physically couldn't continue. Um, and while I had internal um protests in terms of like ethics on some things and I had sort of started really kind of grappling with concepts like tithing and was you know kind of really thinking about how am I operating and what is being asked of me to actually participate in the system and what are my like small ways that I can protest without rocking the boat too much mm -hmm. you know that sort of grew and grew but what really what really kind of pushed me out was the fact that I just physically couldn't continue. So I left the church when I was about 22. Um, and, and that was purely 
the point where I really considered that I left was I actually physically couldn't attend a service. Mm. So by that stage, I had already left employment. I had already left volunteering. I had already left youth leadership. And my, my in my mind, I wanted to just continue participating as a congregant member. However, my body didn't even allow me to do that. So that would be my last when I fully exited. Mm. Yeah. It's... um. It's interesting to to reflect on those kind of leaving stories as well. As much as the entering stories are interest, you know, are, are really interesting, um, and even how there are things going on within us and maybe even in our bodies that that we haven't cognitively processed enough yet to even really know what's going on. Um, but but in fact, our, our our whole system including our bodies, right, is, is actually giving us the, the story <laughs> if, we were, if yeah. we're able to pay attention to it. Uh, you know, and that That's resonates with, with like so many stories, the hundreds of stories, if not thousands, that are spilling out into the public space at the moment, in New Zealand in particular. Um, and one of the common features is people's bodies doing that, right, is, is people's bodies being pushed to the point of, of total exhaustion, um, no, more than exhaustion, Absolutely. you know, more than I was I was tired, so I had a couple of good sleeps and then I was okay, but the kind of exhaustion, the kind of fatigue um, that you're talking yeah. about there. Mm. Yeah, and I was I was actually really frustrated at my body. Mm. Um, mm. I really thought my body was letting me down. I was really angry um, that my body was essentially making decisions for me um, about the way that I participate in something that I actually felt really passionate about. Mm. Um so, and there's a whole story around, I guess, body and the church and mm. embodiment. Um, and I think, you know, since leaving the church, one of my biggest pathways to healing my, what, what I would call trauma in the church has been through my body, mm. has been through kind of um, getting back to my body and what it's saying to me. Um, so I feel like it's a very important piece of the puzzle when we're talking about religious trauma or spiritual abuse. I really don't think we can talk about it without addressing and talking about the body because mm. trauma lives in the body. Mm. Um, and really, I was in a sustained place of survival mode. I, I, my body was just in a long-held, sustained um, place of fight or flight, and it just couldn't do it anymore. Mm. Yeah, uh, it's extraordinary in, in, in some respects that you're hitting that point at 22, you know? Like, I mean, it's, no one should hit that point. But, but it's, it's pretty sobering to think that in a community where you would hope you are being cared for, um, that, that at that age, you know, you would find yourself at that point. That's, you know, um, and again, perhaps resonates with, with many of the stories that we're hearing at the moment. Um, Nicole, we, I've mentioned already just there that, um, that there are, at the moment, particularly because of the work of this journalist here, David Farrier, um, who's, who's kind of opened the floodgates, so to speak, um, of, of kind of people's experiences of abuse and trauma and burnout uh, and, and, and so on within these kinds of churches, um, some big but not all, yeah, um, that's important to note, is... Is um is the kind of the level of the volume of that because even I, I'm I know from from working in a space where I hear from people like this relatively regularly anyway that the number of people who actively share their story 
is usually still a very small percentage of the number of people who've had that experience because most people, in fact, aren't in a place where they feel like either they want to or could or would know how to share um, their experience. So if in those hundreds, maybe thousands of stories we're seeing, for me that's reflective then of, of a much larger, again, number of people uh, with these kinds of experiences and not just in New Zealand, of course. Well, you know, what we're seeing is that these, there's a certain way of going about things, that the fundamentalism in colour that you were talking about before that seems to bring with it um, a whole ethos and, and mode of operating that, that is pretty troubling. Um, are you surprised, perhaps, perhaps that's not the right question, but are you surprised by the volume of people or, or you know, is it consistent with the kinds of things that you see in, in your practice? What's, what's your sense of that? Very much. And Michael, if you don't mind, I just want to just acknowledge Jess's story mm. and just how it deeply moves me again just to listen to your story, Jess, and to hear, you know, just how your body was faithful to you. <laughs> you know, and even using that word faithful, I use it on purpose because it's like, um, you know, in, in conservative religious settings and fundamentalism, the body is often discarded in theology. It's like it doesn't matter, very much like, you know, the lack of eco-theologians, for example, in Pentecostalism points to the fact that environment body is kind of sidelined. Mm. And it, it moves me just to, to hear, I get teary, hearing your story and, you know, your body showed up for you and, um, and you listened to it, please. <laughs> And um, I just want to acknowledge that. Mm. Um, um, Thank you. I, and, and Michael, no, I'm not surprised at the amount of people coming through because I think, you know, there's, it's like we're waking up from amnesia, really. We're waking up from amnesia. We're waking up and considering, you know, for those of us where faith and the person of Christ is important, we're considering that the person, the work, the words of Jesus and comparing that, we're beginning to allow ourselves to compare that to what is presented as church mm. in many large religiously informed institutions and beginning to feel horrified, horrified mm. at the incongruity. And we're actually allowing ourselves to feel that at the incongruity of what we are observing and have experienced ourselves in Jess's story my story in a different way. Um, you know, we live, I think we live in a very spiritual culture. We live in a culture that is, is looking for a faithful, perhaps courageous representation of um, the divine or a loving God. But what we wake up to is a religion. Um, sorry, and I'm talking in broader context mm, right yeah. now, but, in, you know, religion that so often is so harsh, fear-based, condemning, critiquing everything and everyone that is not in their form of ideas, you know, does not adhere to their form of ideas that are often called doctrine. And I have a problem with that. Mm. So, no, the great migration that McLaren, you know, would have talked about quite a few years ago in the spiritual migration is not surprising. I think there is a movement. It's rapidly growing. And I agree with you right now. There's a few voices here and there, but I think there's a groundswell of voices because, what is happening in the trauma phase is people are going from that shocked silence of experience to the anger space. Mm. And when anger comes along and sits at our table of life and wants to mm. speak up, you know, we begin to actually um, 
connect with that. And again, just thinking about anger and how anger or even being angry has been weaponized against people when they've experienced injustice. But here we are beginning to lean in, give anger a cup of tea, I always say, and let it speak what's Mm. coming up. So I do think there is an increase of voices and that we'll hear a lot more. Um, I think one of the problems, I don't even know whether I'm answering your question on a a rant. Um, (laughs) You know, I think one of the problems is that there is a refusal by so many religiously religious, conservative religious leaders to actually admit that there is a problem. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's just no consideration that even some of the doctrines held, handed down by ancestors of thought is problematic. It created carnage in church history. Mm. And there's no owning this. There's no apology. There's no consideration. Hey, we can't just, you know, wash this over with loud music and great uh, lights Mm. and everything else. We actually need to go to the heart of some of the problem of modern conservative religion. Of course, we're talking about Pentecostalism in particular, which I think one of the big problems is in the way that contributes to Jesus' experience is the way leadership is considered. Mm. You know, this Messiah celebrity-like status where people are not questioned or or allowed to be critiqued. You know, they, they cast this great vision and young people are drawn to it, but there's no room to actually be held accountable. There's no accountability for that leader. Mm. So, And after a while, people wear out one way or the other. And Jess's story is just so profound in mm. our conversation here. And I'm just so glad you're here, Jess, because, you know, to have somebody really explain like you did about what it is like to live in a culture where it's, you know, I think it would be vision-driven would be the term, you know, Mm vision-driven, and you are just one of the commodities of slaves that makes that vision happen. Mm. And there's no stopping, no consideration that, hey, is this really what Jesus had in mind when he's going, you know what, I'm going to build a church, and you know, the whole idea of ecclesia. So um, I've lost myself in my rant, Michael. Um, It's all right, it happens to me all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So no, to, to <laughs> so I don't, I'm not surprised at all. I think um, people are getting in touch with their protest one mm. way or the other. For Jess, it was her body was protesting. For others, it's your gut. It's just you know that happened for me. That something is not right. I need to take. I need to stop. Just you know, have a look around and see what it is. Where are my values being violated? Mm. I think your comment as well about um, like anger, which then I was starting to feel emotional while you were talking about that. Having anyway, it's like this is this we're just going to you know, shall we just cry together for a while? Um, <laughs> because I, I'm aware like how how deeply repressed those feelings you know have been for me because of because of the shape of that spirituality and the rules around it and the allowed and the disallowed feelings. Um, and and it's even interesting to me at the moment that. That there are those who hear the anger in these stories and immediately want to be go, okay, okay, so um, let's let's fix it up then and carry on. Very uncomfortable with with the anger in the stories, and so then, oh, these people are maybe bitter, or, or you know, the, the kind of that you write someone off in these spaces often if they're angry, which is like exactly the wrong thing to do with that anger, right? Instead, what is the anger telling us? Yes, it's. 
you know, it's so interesting to now to look back and go, what emotional expressions were weaponized mm. in, or mm. ha- are still being weaponized mm. in, in these settings, you know, wh- anger, you know, we- uh, forgiveness. So, mm. you know, the whole idea of you've got to forgive now. And when we really look at it, it's all ways that we can be controlled. We are actually conditioned in a sense, for, you know, especially for people who've grown up in these settings, you're conditioned to, to engage with emotions that are permitted and not permitted. Mm. So when anger shows up, it's like we don't even know what to do with it because it's almost a shame to admit that we hold anger. And mm. yet uh, anger has a job to do. It's yeah. there to keep us safe. And so it, it's really yeah. interesting people getting in touch with their emotions. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate the um, bringing up of anger because I think for me and part of my healing since experiencing church the way that I have has actually been sitting with my anger. Um, And I don't think I would be at the point where I am now able to talk about it without actually um, welcoming my anger in and making it not my enemy. Mm. Um, because it really helps to define for me what was important to me and what was actually being violated for me and where my boundary was. I would never have known that if I hadn't sat down and welcomed it in. And I think the other side of it is that in these systems of church, um, particularly for women, anger is not permitted. Um, When you think of righteous anger, that is really squarely in a male space. Um, Women, you know, should really be attributed to gentleness and kindness and submission. Um, And so when it comes to feelings of anger and assertiveness and frustration um, and boundary violation, these are never, those were never things that I allowed myself to hold a space for myself with. You know, those were always things that were labeled as bitter or not of good character. Um, And so it's very important for me now to listen to those parts of myself Mm -hmm. and to understand that they're actually part of being human um, and they're really important. It's so important. Um, I always love the idea, we often talk about our table of life in in trauma recovery. And, um, you know, one of the ways go about it is to consider, we externalize what actually is going on. So, you know, who sits around your table of life? Here's anger and, you know, there's resentment or whatever else. And just to sit with it, give it a cup of tea, allow it to speak, allow it to tell the stories it needs to be told because anger has a job. Mm. And so when anger is shame and silence, in any sort of institutional setting, when there's no room for certain emotions, that is a huge warning sign. Hindsight is great. Now we can look yeah. at it. But, you know, that is a huge warning sign. One of the things that has come up a lot, like so much, almost almost everybody <laughs> just about who, who has been in touch, and there have been many over the last month or so, um, talk about the feeling of aloneness um, in this journey. So talk about feeling like I was the only one. I thought I was going crazy. Um, I had no... And people even who are getting in touch saying, this was my experience 15 years ago and I, and I only just now realized that I'm not the only one, you know. Um, I'm interested, Jess, did, like, did you, as, even as you were kind of going through your process of, 
of coming out of that space and then the processing that happened on the other side of that. Um, did you have a sense that you were kind of alone in this or did you, or, or did this feel like this was something that, you know, you were one of many going through? When I left, uh, when I left the church, I knew of some bitter people <laughs> <laughs> that had already left. Oh yes, um, very bitter. Yes, and <laughs> very bitter. <laughs> um, and what makes it complicated is that I knew of people who had moved on and had found healthier churches or had found healthier lives outside of church. However, I never engaged with them initially because I didn't want the label of being bitter. Mm. And so when I left church, I worked extremely hard to shut down my anger, shut down even my the fact that I was burnt out, physically restraining my body from showing signs of burnout, I avoided all of that because I didn't want the label of being bitter because the label of bitter essentially means that you lose your community, Mm. that you're not welcome in your community anymore. And that had been my community since I was 13 years old. So it was a huge, a huge loss to embrace that label. However, I, as, as I physically couldn't attend again, I began speaking with friends who had left and, I had known one friend who had left and she had given me permission saying, why do you keep going back? Why are you, why are you pressuring yourself to keep going back into the same context that caused this harm? You're not going to find your healing in the same place where you received the harm. And when she said that to me, it gave me permission to rest and care for my body. And since then, I have felt for many, many years largely alone Mm. because there hasn't really been a public conversation about this. I felt alone in the sense that I wasn't heard by the church about my experience. I felt alone in that sense of the only community I had known. And I felt alone in the sense that people weren't really knowing how to talk about it. And also there was no um, validation of religious trauma and spiritual abuse. Mm. So I actually, for the longest time, thought my reaction was overreacting, Mm. Um, that my reaction was overinflated and I was too sensitive. Again, the problem being me as an individual, not the system that caused the the, the pain. Um, And it's not actually until recently with David Ferrier's work and also what's been happening with Hillsong that actually I have felt so validated. Um, And I feel emotional about everybody who has shared their story Mm. because I know how painful it is to go back and share and also what you risk by Mm. sharing. Yes. So I feel feel so... um, I feel not alone now. Um, and I'm so, and the only reason for that is for people's bravery, being able to talk about it. And I'm so, so grateful. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I'm crying myself through this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's such big stuff. And I think it's so, yeah deeply 
grieving in so many ways. Um, as someone, you know, for me, where I still believe that spirituality at its best is this nourishing, life-giving um, part of us, part of us, for it to be a, to have been used and, and weaponized in such a way for so many um, in ways that have led to the kind of harm and trauma that we're seeing, and that if we're honest, has been going on for a long time, right? Um, it's just, it's yeah, it's it's confronting. In, in, a, in a different kind of way, perhaps not confronting to say, oh, theoretically you can kind of know it's there. But I think as people's stories, you know, pour in and pour out, um, you're, you're face to face with the fact this is people's real, this is their lives that have been so deeply um, impacted by, um, damaged by, by what's gone on here. It really is. I mean... Mm. When I was involved in church, it was my career path. It was my future as well as my, at the time, it was my present and it was really my dream for the future. Mm. Um, and when I left, um, the potency of my fear around the loss of my future, um, the fact that I'd spent my out-of-school years from 18 to 22 investing in church and not pursuing a career or whatever else. Mm. Um, the loss of that was really huge and grieving and actually very scary for me. Yeah. The loss of the certainty of my um, eternal destination was very scary for mm. me. When I left and decided not to return back to church, that was one of the fears that I had to grapple with was what am I now still going to heaven? Mm. Um, you know, and those are very real and scary things to be dealing with when you decide to step out of a major context of your life. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it is very huge. And I think that validation needs to be said because one of the things that are coming out around these acknowledgements from church and, and the apologies from church um, yes. are that these things just feel small fry. They just feel little, you know. Um, and for me, my trauma was a thousand tiny cuts that mm. led to death um and i think that is worth acknowledging mm. it doesn't necessarily have to be one large event that causes trauma trauma is how your body responds to an event or a thousand little events um and i think the systems of these churches are designed in ways to treat people as a resource and i think that is where we lose sight of Humanity, we become dehumanizing in our systems. We ask people to participate in ways that are dehumanizing. We see the earth as a resource. We see everything as a resource, a means to an end, mm. toward our end goal. And if we treat people that way, if we treat the planet that way, if we treat anything that way, we are going to cause trauma. And I think one of the reasons why churches may have a hard time apologizing or even acknowledging is because the system itself points to the individual, mm. right? The individual mm. is always the problem. The system itself can never be critiqued. 
And I think that's why we get things like celebrity culture. It is about the individual. And if pastors take accountability for the harm, I feel like it's a threat to their identity instead of us being able to critique the system itself and realize that we are architects of that system Mm, too. mm. And that's the kind of accountability that I would love to see. Let's critique the system as a whole. Let's critique the way that it's asking us to participate. And let's apologize for the fact that we've created a system that treats people this way. We are the architects of it and we can change it. Well, that'll preach, Sorry, Jess. Long rant. No, no, long it's good. rant. <laughs> um, yeah, it's um, gosh, there's so much in 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 this conversation already. I feel like we're going to have to talk for about maybe eight hours. So um, that 18 month year old is going to have to sleep for a long time. Uh, <laughs> it's no, it's really good, Jess. I think it's even I've been so fascinated, disturbed, but in a fascinating way. By the, by the response of various um, religious spaces and even within some of these churches to the issues that have been highlighted. And it almost seems like, even going back to the holiness thing you were talking about earlier, Nicole, unless a pastor screws around and is caught and it's really obvious, um, that's pretty much almost the only thing that really breaks the code. Manipulation, abuse, coercion, burnout, um, all of that stuff is not considered, like you said, I think it was small things or something, you know, like that's considered like small fry that, um, and yeah, we might reprimand, reprimand the odd person for going a bit far sometimes, um, perhaps, as long as they're not the senior leader because they won't be. Um, and so so all of this stuff that we're talking about that's causing the most carnage, actually, the most widespread carnage is coming from the thousand small cuts. Yes, there are these bigger incidences that are serious, but they they really only point if we take them seriously to the to the many many smaller things that are that are of of more widespread impact upon the hundreds and the thousands of people um, in these spaces. Yeah, um, I'm so glad you said that. Uh, do you, uh, you made you made a comment earlier as well, Jess, about about sort of gender, you know, about a, a young woman in that space and and what that meant for your emotions that, that you were supposed to feel or, and, and that you weren't allowed to feel. Are there any other ways that you think about your experience in particular as a young woman in that space that, that maybe young, I don't know, maybe that, that young men weren't having to wrestle with or negotiate in quite the same way? Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. I, um, I think there are many ways in which um, genders are treated differently um, where there's expectations of gender roles within a church context. I think that is explicitly referenced within um, leadership and marriage, and I think it's pretty clear. I think that um, within church, you can't really reference a good character of a woman without referencing how she is as a wife or within the context of marriage. I think that's the first thing I would say, um, mm. and I think that's a problem. Um, I think for me, how things like that worked out was I began to second guess my own intuition or judgment on, um, things about my own life, about decisions I should make and would not proceed without the approval of my pastor. Um, even if I felt like God was speaking to me in one way, if my pastor thought I should go the opposite way, I would defer my power Mm. to that decision. 
Um, and it, and that was fulfilling the right role as a as a woman, mm. submitting to leadership. Um, and yeah, I think that was one of the most explicit ways probably it outworked. But I think another way that I found particularly harmful for me was as a woman, there is an expectation of vulnerability and to stay in a position of vulnerability, right? So for me, when I had any leadership, male or female, approach me about my life, if I was not open and vulnerable, I would be seen as having not the right spirit. Mm. Um, And that power play of being asked to continually be vulnerable and and submissive um, is abusive. The power play, that structure that is set up within church, and one of the most explicit examples that I can possibly think of is Carl Lentz in the US when he was made um, redundant or whatever you want to say, he was fired. Um, His wife automatically lost her job as the position of co-pastor. And I can't really provide a clearer picture of misogyny other than that. Um, There is no operating as a woman independently without the approval of some kind of power dynamic or leader. Mm. Yeah. So that was very much my experience, Um, even down to the point where I wanted to resign my job at church because my body was really not doing well. And in order to do that, I had to have three meetings with male lead pastors explaining why it is that I wanted to resign my job. I had to have deep conversations with them about the will of God for my life and whether my judgment was right about that will or not. Um, And that was extremely traumatic for me as a young woman coming up against a lead pastor who, you know, is very authoritarian in style. Mm. Um, And while I was allowed a support person, but not of my choosing, so um, any old support person came into the room, sat quietly because, of course, a man and a woman can't be in a room together by themselves. Um, but that power play and dynamic was very difficult, mm. very difficult for me. Um, and I can't help but think for a typical male that perhaps that power play may have been different. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um Nicole, did you have any? I, I know you've. You, I would imagine you've, you've talked with a lot of um, women as a part of your practice as well. Is you know, do you see gender, the way in which gender is is seen, um, treated, um, some of the things that Jess is talking about here? Do you see this kind of coming up a lot as well? All the time, mm. all the time. I mean, there's a supremacy in, and this is something we don't, you know, that that. Again, there's a big problem in modern religion, and yes, in particular, we're talking in the Pentecostal mm. megaspace, but there's a supremacy of male, white, heterosexual. Mm. Um, and in, in, anybody that doesn't quite fall in there is seen as something other, not quite complete. You know, then you have the patriarchal notions that inform teaching and theology. And, and you know, again, just thinking about what Jess is saying about you know, they they weaponize vulnerability. Mm. 
they use somebody's vulnerability and really it's it's their longing for God. You know, it's it's just it's heinous. Mm. They use that vulnerability to to twist, to turn. And you know, one of the things we often talk about in these sort of settings with my clients is this need, this feeling they need to explain their life to everybody, you know, and part of the recovery, part of the recovery is you don't need to, you do not owe anybody an explanation. And part of the trauma response is I need to make sure everybody knows everything, mm. you know, and, mm. and and we are, again, it's like we've been shaped in these settings to be like, you know, to just open our lives to everybody. So it's just, it's just so interesting and, and something I experienced myself. You know, I remember as a, as a female leader in, in our setting, you know, I would speak something that for sure there would be criticism, things said to me as a woman pertaining to my gender that would never, ever be said mm. to a man, mm. never. And, you know, if you brought it up, it was kind of considered almost funny, but it's not funny. It's deeply traumatic mm. and um, it's not okay. So yes, I, I, you know, just hear and resonate and acknowledge again Jess's story and and just what you've brought out there, Jess. Um, just something else, you know, the term gaslighting comes to mind. Mm, yeah, gaslighting is a form of, you know, for those interested, is a form of emotional manipulation in an abusive relationship where the bully or the abuser or the one who actually holds the power, because really at the centre of so much what we're talking about is power dynamics. Yeah. Um, who holds the power, misleads the one subjected to the abuse by making them question their perception of life mm. or story. So now when we turn it into, say, spiritual gaslighting, you know, it's when somebody invalidates another person's experience by taking scripture, normally scripture totally out of context, yes. and applying it to their hardship, to their heartache, to, to the pain and trauma that they're facing, you know, with, with cliche ideas that we're still, you know, handed around later on by family and well-meaning friends, you mm. know, you just need to forgive. Mm. Uh, don't let offense in your heart. Mm. Um, you know, it's not good to speak evil like this. Are you gossiping? Mm. Or, you know, mm. the classic, the classic that we do. And I, you know, looking back, I, I, I have to say I've been mm. complicit in this one. It just makes me shrink. I just, anyway you know, saying to people, have you spoken to that person that you're talking about? And mm. in a sense, sending them back to the person that abused them. Mm. Mm. So, you know, ultimately, spiritual gaslighting is weaponizing God or scripture against another person's pain or abuse. And it's a form ultimately of control. Mm. And it's been around really since the church in the famous words of Richard Raw moved from the catacombs to the palaces mm. and became embroiled and identified with power. Mm. So gaslighting is nearly always the first line of attack in any abusive scenario. And when you look for the, look at the, sorry, now I'm getting angry, at the sorry excuse of apologies that are coming mm. through right now. Yes. Really, ultimately, it's just one big gaslighting yeah. act. There is no true repentance of what the trauma that was inflicted on mm. people here. So, did, to, and, and you know, I know you had a question somewhere in there, and I'm jumping ahead, uh, Michael, but, <laughs> okay. you, you know, you asked me somewhere along the line about the difference between interpersonal conflict and, you know, how we differentiate mm. that with, um, 
you know, with these sort of abusive situations. And I always say, think about where the power is located. Institutional abuse asks you for an allegiance. It asks you to lay aside your personal rights to uphold a belief or an interpretation of the Bible. And it is, let's just stick with that, it is an interpretation of the Bible mm. through their culture, through their context, through their lens. Mm. So in the case of an offense or abuse, it demands you lay aside your protest and the values that have been violated because to question any part of that sort of systemic pressure or demand in places it put, puts you in a problematic space. Suddenly you don't have enough faith in God. So, you know, it, it's just it's just so hard to think about that the control comes through the very faith and love for God that a person holds. Mm. And when we stop yeah. to think about it, that is so deeply traumatic. Yes. It's the well, the good intent of another, the value of faith in God that in turn is being used against them. I think um, that, that was a question we had that I had in mind as well, which is sort of what makes spiritual or religious abuse and trauma, you know, so potent in very particular ways. And I think what you're talking about there is a part of that because you're taking the thing that sits at the very heart of someone's core sense of identity, of passion, of desire, um, of, you know, and, and that's the very thing that is used as a part of yeah. the, the trauma you know, and you know, the abuse. I would it's say, you know, what makes it so, so in a simple way, what, what really makes spiritual abuse so heinous is the idea of God in this space. Yes. Because God, you know, for a person of faith, stretches into every part of life. Mm. The idea of God stretches to worldview, it stretches to relationship, it stretches to vocation, as Jess and, you know, myself have experienced in different ways. Mm. So, so therefore, Every part of the, our world is affected because God is central to, you know, or the idea of God is central to the abuse mm. in these mm -hmm. religious trauma settings. Yeah, and explicit. I like. I'm just so resonating with that, and a memory just came to mind about when I had shared with my pastor that I had too many commitments um, and that I was too exhausted to continue with some of the commitments. Um, and it was explicitly said to me that if I am on the road to burnout, it is because I am not close enough with God. Mm. That was explicitly told mm. to me. Um, and that was devastating for me. Um, that was, wow, not only does my pastor and my boss think I am not close to God, I must not be actually doing enough. Mm. I must not be doing enough quiet times. I must not actually be close to God. Um, so it completely, I completely resonate with everything that you've just shared, Nicole. It's mm. just, it's absolutely how it plays out. I think this, um, this conversation is so important, even as we, because one of the one of the methods of gaslighting, ironically, is is in this whole thing is to say, well, look, um, and this is why I was, you know, asking the question about kind of the difference between and just normal interpersonal conflict that happens within communities, as it as it does, and kind of the the abuse of um, spaces that we're talking about, because I think a lot of people are told, well, there's no perfect church. Why are you expecting, you know? 
perfection. These are just men, usually. Um, they're just a man. Uh, it's your fault for putting them on a pedestal. Uh, and, um, and, you know, all communities have conflict and people misunderstand. And, you know, th- the reason gaslighting works often is there is like a thread of truth somewhere in, in that. Um, somewhere deep down sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, there is, there is a thread that people recognize and go, oh, yeah, maybe you, you must be right. Um, and, and so, so how, yeah, that, that question of how do we, if, if you're in a space, right, if you're in a community, and I think there are still a lot of people, and I'm hearing from them, who are in spaces where they're going, is, am I in a, I am in, am I in a harmful space here? Like, am I in one of those spaces? Because I've got all of these questions and stuff going on, but then at the same time, I mean, there is no perfect church. And like, how, how does someone, do you have any thoughts, um, either of you really, but Nicole, maybe start with you, about how people go about that process of kind of discerning that question? Um, if, if, does that make sense? It does. Um, so I hear twofold question, Michael, just to clarify. Mm. Is it how they discern that in themselves, do you think? Is that what you're asking? Like, or, or what they are noticing, you know, in the church that might give, send alarm bells? And maybe we want to talk about both. Yeah, maybe both. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think one of the first things to consider is, you know, in Pentecostal conservative settings often, and I say often because I don't want to draw this blanket over every Pentecostal church because Mm -hmm. I think that's not fair and not true, actually. But in some of these things like we're observing right now, you know, mega churches here coming out in the media and in in New Zealand, is um, in those particular settings, we are conditioned not to trust ourselves. Don't, you know, what's that scripture about? Don't trust your heart. It is deceitful above all things. Sure, yeah. Now, there is just the most perfect gas light, yeah. <laughs> light available scripture, you know. And so one of the things that people struggle with when they are in those or have come out is this inability to really connect and trust themselves, trust their gut in this. And so what I would say is, the very fact that you're thinking there could be a problem, that's a red flag. Mm. The very fact that you are concerned about something, something in you is going, this is not okay. So acknowledge that. Acknowledge that there's a certain discomfort that you're sitting with that even begs a question out of you. Mm. And then go, what is it, if possible, that I'm not okay with? And what does that not okayness feel like? You know, are you feeling confused are you feeling sad or or depressed or you know are you feeling shame or guilt what is coming up for you what is being violated in your value system so first of all I think the first important thing is to acknowledge that you're in, in Jess's case her body you know that something is letting you know that something is not okay mm. and to just acknowledge that and sit with it for a while um, I always say, you know, our values, the things that really are meaningful and important to us are like a compass, an internal compass. It's like something is going off that is going, hey, <laughs> this isn't true north anymore. That's where we want to mm. head. So what is our compass telling us? And what are you observing? You know, begin to look at at how your church operates, at how the leadership operates. You know, is there, do they hold all the authority? Mm. Is there something about if you ask a question or, you know, you critique something, are you being sidelined? 
you know, the, 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 I hesitate going cult, but, you know, the, this cult-like ways that toxic spaces operate, but if you even just look, begin to look at the symptoms of cult behavior, mm-hmm. you can detect a problem and control power is one of those. Um, you know, is there a shaming that comes? Mm-hmm. Are you being made to be afraid or feel ashamed of yourself, of the way you identify? Mm-hmm. Is there a necessity to put other people down in order to lift up the leader or the belief system? You know, there's so many sign, warning signs, and I'm not quite sure whether I'm answering the question, Michael. That's no, really, really good, really good. And, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to, to hear from Jess just to see what it is that you think back of and experience. For me, it was very much when I look back, it, it was a violation of certain values that I was going, this is no longer okay. I need to actually need time out to, mm. to begin to deconstruct that. Yeah, I completely <laughs> agree and support everything that you just shared with us, Nicole. And I really think for me, um, right now I would be asking myself, can I, what is happening within me? What protests are coming out? What values are being revealed to me about the way that I would like to participate within this? And can I bring that difference to the table within this context? And will that be respected? as a contributing member of this mm. community. Mm. Um, can we all sit with the difference of what we're all feeling? And we might have disagreement, we might see things a different way, but can we be together in that conflict and in that difference? And if we can, amazing. Can we do that healthily? Can we find a path forward where we all feel heard and where this difference can actually count? If I and if I cannot participate in this with my difference, with my protest, with my value, if my identity is being diminished because I even have that feeling or because I even have a different point of view, how I would start to question things then. Mm. I would start to say, you know, what what is it about the system or the way that things are running that is not allowing for true collaboration, for true growth? the true difference. Um, And then I would, you know, I think through that process of questioning, you would actually learn a lot, to be honest, Mm. about where it is that you are and whether you would like to stay or not. Mm. And I think that's the thing. Churches and communities need to be places where we can authentically participate in a way that feels true to us and is healthy to what an individual and a human being determines is healthy for them. That's what a healthy community is when we can function together within that. Mm. And I think that's exactly what you were saying, Nicole, about um, acknowledging that each person has power and allowing that person to have their power. And I think these systems in large actually remove that. They seek to remove that power. Yeah. Mm. So that would be kind of a very clear thing for me right Mm. now when thinking Mm. back about... I had differences, I had feelings, I had questions, um, and my belonging was put on the line with those questions. Mm. And if your belonging is on the line, I would say it's not a healthy environment. 
That is, you know, I just wrote this down. What is being threatened? Is it our belonging when you were talking? Because that's really what comes through in what you are saying, Jess. You know, it is if if we speak up, if we question or, um, ne- you know, begin to negotiate a different scenario or different hope, what is what is what is the fear that holds us back? What is being threatened? And I think you just nailed it. It's it's belonging. Mm. Often in toxic cultures, belonging is being threatened. And belonging is just one of those human needs that are very core. So, you know, we wonder why people can go through abuse and all sorts of horrible things and not speak up because there's they might still have family members in there. You know, this is a very common scene yes. right now is yes. there's family members connected. And if they say something, the little bit of belonging that they still have in relation to family, mm. particularly your friends, will be totally, and that, you know, removed. And that's, what, you know, one of the things that makes makes me use the word cult because that's how cults behave. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, I just, what is being threatened if you speak up? And, you know, like you said, Jess, if it, it's belonging, it, there is a major problem here yeah. and it's not your problem. Yes. There's a problem. Yes. You are living with the effects of that problem. Yes. Mm. Oh, that's, I think, so helpful. And um, I'm pretty sure that a lot of people listening to this are going to find that extremely, extremely helpful advice um, and reflection. Um, not just advice, really. It's much more than that. Um, it's insight. And uh, because I think, again, one of the things that happens for people and you, you both may have experienced this yourself is that it feels like when you're in the middle of it it often feels like a big confusing muddle in your head and you don't know which way is up and down and you don't know what because you've been gaslit maybe continuously you know for a, for a long period of time um, the idea to get the, the, the path to clarity seem can seem very difficult um, you know we had when, when there was a few of us um, processing some of our questions we formed something and we sort of loosely called it the sanity club um because we all felt like we were losing our minds, and we had we and so to find other people who could just say, yes, what you're feeling is 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 okay and valid, and those experiences are important. Just to have someone to say, and that's again something I've heard so much in the feedback from people is, I thought I was losing my mind here. I, I you know, and and again, so devastating, right? That that people who are experiencing abuse and trauma are then also led to the point where they feel like they are the ones. Who are who are the problem? Um, it's it's yeah, it's devastating to me. Um, Jess, even as we we're talking about all of that, were there were there any, you know did you as you're talking about that that idea of bringing your difference to the table? Um, did you even have any experience of, of sort of trying to do that in in your space? Um, yes, I yes. did. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think at first there were probably very subtle ways in which I would pivot the way that I would do things and whether that would be uh, requesting for volunteers to come and help me and respecting their no and saying, oh, you've got that family event, choose the family event over mm. the church event. I think, you know, small little protests like that, which kind of would could go unseen. Um, but then it sort of escalated into me challenging the amount of times that we were asking for tithes from young people, mm. um, especially preteens. Um, that um, became something that I questioned in a very roundabout, non-confrontational <laughs> way. Mm. Um, but the principle of it was not received well. Mm. Um, 
and I was um, very swiftly lectured um, by two male staff members about the principle of tithing um, <laughs> who had very red faces. <laughs> I was quite... <laughs> oh, anyway, um, yeah, so definitely. And I think even um, after leaving my employment at church, um, I sought to sort of reconnect with my pastors and my ex-bosses about my experience. Um, and... Oh, there's a couple of things I want to kind of say about that. One was there was a real need for me to voice my feelings about what went down, how things happened, um, because I wanted to feel heard. And part of that feeling heard is actually feeling validated in my experience mm. and actually having empathy for my experience. And I, when I think about empathy, I think about it's not that you necessarily relate to someone's experience, but you just allow someone to have the experience that they actually have and then you respect it. Mm. And that's really what I was searching for. And I did not receive that. Um, it was extremely challenging for me to go back and share my experience with these particular individuals. One, because it wasn't received well, and two, because my body actually really wasn't ready for that. Mm. Um, I was really in a survival place. And one of the things I, I actually think I re-traumatized myself by actually seeking that out. And mm. I just wanted to name that because one of the responses I've seen coming from some church members, which I actually really honor from a really um, good intentions place, is welcoming survivors and people who have been abused to come back and share their stories with with them within the context of church. And for me, I understand that actually there's a willingness for the church to be open and hear that. However, you can re-traumatize yourself by going back into spaces, going back into the same setup and power dynamic to share your story, to feel like you can be heard. And so I would just name that and say, if you are have a similar experience to me and someone is requesting that you share your story with them so that they can understand better. You don't have to do that. Mm. You don't have to um, use your story as a betterment for their learning. Um, you don't actually have to do that. You have permission to say no. Mm. Um, and I would seek way more safer spaces if you are feeling like you want to be heard mm. um, to people who can actually help you heard because you can actually re-traumatize people by asking them to do that. Yes. So I would just, I just wanted to say that. It's really good. Um, but yeah, I definitely have had experience with um, pushing back and, and really getting those red flags back being like, hang on, if you are going down this path, your belonging is not going to be mm. um, welcome here anymore. Definitely. Mm. I um I know that one of the things that even you know we've kept in touch over the years <laughs> at, at times, and um, one of the words you've used, um, and I know have done some work on, and one of the words you've used a lot already today is trauma. Um, you've talked before about how when you first came out, obviously your body was like no, 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 um, but how you still worked very hard to essentially push a lot of the the feeling and the processing down, um. At what point did you, or how you know, how did you come to be aware then, perhaps at a later time, that you had that you had trauma as a result of your experience that needed um, some, you know, needed a, a journey. Um, yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think it's taken me years and years and years to 
um, acknowledge that within myself. Um, I think when I am taking space away from church and allowing myself to find other safe spaces where my body wasn't triggered into a survival mode and really helped to one, heal the burnout that I had and heal, um, just get me back to a state of feeling safe enough to not be in fight or flight mode basically with my body. Mm. Um, and so that had been years and years and years. And then I had decided um, I still couldn't step back into the context of church without having a physical reaction. So if I knew, okay, the context of a church service is just not going to work for me, mm. but what if I could participate in a smaller group? Um, so I attended a small woman's group um, with a really good friend of mine. And that was another reason why I attended because I had a really good friend who I knew would be supportive mm. of whatever went down. Mm. Um, and so I attended this group and, um, within the group, the leader of the group played a video of a woman preaching and, um, she played it and I immediately disassociated, um, my book, like I, my mind went blank. I, it, I was like in a time warp. Like my mind just went blank and I didn't have any concept. And so the preacher preached for like 20 minutes and they turned the DVD off. And then the leader of the group was like, okay, let's go around the group and discuss about, you know, what this woman's just preached about. Um, and they got to me and I, I couldn't talk. I kind of just went into full freeze. Mm. I couldn't think straight. I couldn't talk. I was in full shock. Um, so as soon as the group wrapped up, I actually went straight home, sat on the couch and just burst into tears. Um, and my friend in her wisdom kind of saw something happening and followed me home and came and sat on the couch with me. And that's kind of when it dawned on me that I can't participate in any of these faith spaces and why not? Mm. What is happening for me? that I can't participate in something that I want to participate in. Um, and so kind of from that point on, I started um, hearing a few more conversations online through podcasts and things about trauma, about spiritual abuse. Um, and at that time, I actually never even labeled myself as having trauma. I was just mm. like, oh, there's just some issue with me here. Like it's definitely not trauma because that is a huge scary word and that's mm. not me. Mm. Um. And then I was fortunate enough to go on a retreat with um, some other women um, who had also experienced um, religious or spiritual abuse. And there were two trauma-informed therapists that came along and a life coach. And we spent three days together um, kind of learning a whole bunch of stuff, but actually never talking about our experience. Um, and we, we kind of, ex we did a whole bunch of embodiment exercises and actually it wasn't until the end of that retreat that I was like, oh yeah, I've got trauma. <laughs> <laughs> it took so long for me to actually even understand. And cause I didn't understand what any mm. trauma was anyway. I didn't understand how it presents itself, what it means and how it is in the body, what PTSD is. I didn't understand anything. So it's not really until I'd learned mm. about those things that I was like, oh, yes, this seems to be what I have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's, um, yeah. it's so interesting. I, th I think there's even perhaps a level of like some of those labels that um, 
again, our, our faith tradition has has sort of loaded so heavily for us. Um, and so to hear, sometimes it's <laughs> um, having our experience mirrored. Like I was, I was in, I was in the news a couple of weekends ago. There was a big article on all of this stuff, and I was interviewed as a part of it. And uh, and I was described as a megachurch survivor, you know. And I was like, oh, uh, that's a very uncomfortable description. Um, <laughs> for some reason, it's so interesting because I've been talking about this stuff, you know, obviously here in this space for, for a while. But you know, I've been thinking about all of this for for the, the more than a decade since I, you know, um, escaped. And, <laughs> and um, to, hear my, like, to hear my own sort of experience mirrored to me by somebody else who could actually say, this is how I'm hearing your story. Um, and, I was like, and then, you know, it took me a couple of days to process that label and, and I shared it with a couple of people. I was like, oh, they called me this. And, I was like, and, they, and they were like, well, here's all of the reasons why that's probably an appropriate way to describe you. <laughs> And then I was like, oh, yeah, uh, I think you might be right. And it's so, you know, and I'm someone who's kind of neck deep in these conversations. Um, and still the, the, the desire that's so deep within us to, to, to not allow ourselves to be one of those people, you know, quote, unquote. Yeah. Uh, I even I remember, in the, yeah, the last few deep months. Deep internalized gaslighting, yeah. deep internalization of it, Yeah. The last couple of months of my time on staff, I remember going around to all the people that I sort of was good friends with and just letting them know I was leaving staff, but I wasn't going to be one of those people, <laughs> um, you know, and uh, terrified yeah. that I would be seen as one of those people. Uh, and then funnily enough, now I'm one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't it great? Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd be rather oh, one man. of those people yes. um, now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nicole, but perhaps just to build on um, Jess's story there, in terms of what it is that, because, you know, we can sometimes think, oh, well, you know, I, yeah, I had a bit of a tough time, but I moved on. Cool. And for some people, maybe that is their experience. What are some of the indications perhaps um, that, that someone might have some more significant stuff to work through here? Maybe even, maybe even some trauma, maybe they've experienced some abuse um, with, of, of a religious or spiritual nature in these spaces. What are some of the indications or signs perhaps that we can pay attention to that, that tell us, hey, there's, there's actually some stuff that needs to be uh, worked through here. Um, yes, I, I, I'll come to, to that. Can I just acknowledge yeah. yours and Jess's story again, you know, I, and my own. I keep, <laughs> you know, I keep bring myself in there. But there is a, a certain amount of disbelief that comes in our experiences because, again, there's a conditioning, you know, the language that is often used in these sort of settings has us believe that we are loved, you know, and, and, and that we are, you know, that we are welcomed and loved and, and we, you know, you are loved and we're in a you know, relationship with a loving God. But our lived experiences often go uh, very different. They're very different to what, you know, what is being said and what we're experiencing are different. So there's this incongruity. We can't, we can't actually believe that what we are experiencing, for example, is trauma. Like, you know, Jess, your journey to really come to go, hang on a minute, what I went through was wrong. It was toxic. Mm. It was abusive. <laughs> you know, or, and Michael, I don't know your, your story as well, but just to come to that place where you go. So it takes a little bit of time, I think, to, to work through the disbelief mm. of, of, of us, of, of what actually happened, that we are actually that we are people who've been in a system 
that has left us traumatized physically, emotionally, in the way we relate, mm. you know, and then to be able to actually call it trauma, <laughs> you know, and, and not to, again, like we get used to in, in a gaslighting situation, to diminish our story. Mm. So when it comes to um, um, some, some of the symptoms, uh, you know, I made a list of them here so I don't forget them all, Michael, but, mm. you know, one of them is confusing thoughts, uh, you know, an inability to think critically. And as I'm going there, I also think decision-making. It's a big one when we come out of those settings to just make decisions for ourselves to feel good about our decisions. You know, when, when there's a problem with that, that could be an indication that you've been traumatized. This feeling that we are responsible for everybody's happiness or that mm. we need to tell everybody our story. <laughs> you know, that's big, big indicator. Saying yes to everything. Because again, saying yes to everything, we want to stay connected. We've already experienced so much loss and we might not even cognitively have gone to the place that we've experienced so much loss, but we just say yes to everything. I, I remember, you know, after I, um, I did an interview on, on Joy FM and I just was cut off from people that I thought would hang in with me in the, in, in, you know, in the long term, but they didn't. So just this mm. loss that you feel. Um, shame, guilt, the negative beliefs about self, um, you know, feeling on guard all the time, this hypervigilance, like, mm. am I okay? Is the world okay? Big indicator, a sense of feeling lost. Somebody said, you know, a client recently said, I just feel like I'm in the darkest jungle and I have no idea. I can't mm. see anything. Mm. Then the actual loss, the loss of community, of friends, of family, of, of people that you thought because you drank the Kool-Aid, you're loved, and suddenly, you know, you offer a different perspective or a different belief and you're cut off. And so there's this huge loss that you've got to grapple with. Uh, feeling isolated or alone is a big one. Mm. You know, just this, you know, standing up or protesting, whatever it might be, and just feeling totally alone in the world is a huge indicator that you've just gone through a rather traumatic experience, um, you know, and then of course there's PTSD symptoms, nightmares, flashbacks, you know, depending on the sort of thing that you experience. So I, I think one of the big things though is first to walk through that disbelief mm. that yes, you know, if you have some of these symptoms, there is a possibility that a community or a system that held you and told you that you were loved and you were the hero also may have discarded you when you questioned or criticized and that loss is deep, that, that loss of belonging is deep and you were traumatized. And fortunately for us now, there's so much information about trauma, really good information on considering the phases of trauma, you know, the stages, identifying, providing a little bit of language for us in that. I am. Um, Nicole, I just want to say I feel personally attacked by those lists of symptoms. <laughs> um, <laughs> I feel like you literally just described my personality over the last nine years. I could see. So Jess, Jess was laughing on her uh, end and I was laughing on mine because I felt exactly the same. And then I was like, oh, you're getting to PTSD. At least I won't be in that one. And then you're like, nightmares. And I was like, oh. Uh, <laughs> Which is something I've already talked about on, on in these last few episodes. You know, I still I've still got the the three a.m. the three a.m. nightmares. Um, 
<laughs> oh, so good. Anyway, yes. Uh, look, <laughs> super helpful. You sort of laugh because otherwise you cry, right? Um, <laughs> Laughing is a skill, isn't it? Yeah, Sometimes yeah. Got, to, got to go there instead because oh, I've been gosh. crying most of the podcast. So I'd like to say it. there was at least one thing on the list maybe that didn't apply, but I can't think of any. <laughs> um, <laughs> and can I just say this list is is – lived experience knowledge it's a mm. list i gathered from clients mm-hmm. you know and from my own life too so mm. you know so it, it's it's held in that space of yeah okay we identify mm. with that um so so what are we maybe a question as we bring our conversation to a close because i'm i'm even aware of the kind of stuff we're talking about um you know it's pretty it's it's going to be heavy in a way even for for people to listen along so um so we probably can't have the eight-hour conversation that we could. Uh, I don't know that that'll be good for anyone. But so as as we kind of think about maybe bringing this towards an end, um, what are we? What are some things we can do with this? So if we're in this place, either we're um, we are starting to see that there are some problems in the perhaps in the place that we're there's some systemic stuff going on in the, in the place we find ourselves, or and maybe more importantly for this part of the conversation, that we've actually got some stuff we have to actually process for ourselves um, to heal and find some, some wholeness on the other side of. Um, maybe how do, we, how do we start going about that? I think that's, you know, I think some people just don't really know what to, to do with it all. You know, they just, they don't, I've got all this stuff. What are, and, and it is, again, complex because faith is woven through it all as well. So it's not only my healing, I've got to also work through what I even believe about, about the faith part of this conversation for me. So do, do either of you perhaps have any just, or maybe Jess, you can speak about your own experience of what's been helpful um, for you, but, and then maybe Nicole, what, what you see as being um, some helpful steps people can take. Yes, there's so much. Um, I think one thing for me that I was really worried about when I left was losing my faith. Mm. Um, It was very important to my identity and the way that I wanted to operate and express myself in the world. Um, But I would say that beyond deconstructing, if you're in a space that I was in where it was unhealthy for my whole being, my body, my mind, everything. The priority is actually your health. Mm. The priority is actually your safety. Um, Your faith will be there whenever. (laughs) It doesn't have to change if you don't want it to. Um, It's the priority is actually you and yourself and your whole being. And it is not selfish to prioritize your health and your well-being. Um, and I think that's how I felt. I felt selfish for putting it forward because as a Christian, you are supposed to be selfless, Mm. but actually, um, your nervous system, the way that your body feels, the way that your heart feels, your intuition and your power is important. And if you still believe in the context of faith in God, God speaks through you, um, and he speaks through your body and just as clearly as he is speaking to other people who might have conflicting advice, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but only you really know. And actually your intuition and wisdom is really important and deserves a voice and deserves validation. 
So I would, if you do whatever feels right for you, mm. that's what I would say. Because I can't really say what it would be for mm. everybody out there. Um, and I think that was the first small step for me. Um, for a long time, I deferred. I had an inkling. I had a feeling. I had an intuition. And I deferred it. I deferred it because other people had conflicting advice. And in the end, I came down to, you know what? God speaks through me too. Mm. Um, and I'm going to trust this. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. And then beyond that, like therapy, honestly, good therapy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of therapy. I think everyone should be in therapy. Um, but finding a good, safe therapist, finding people who can hold, um, who can respect your experience mm. um, without wanting to change it or give you advice out of it. I think mm. um, people who can really hold you for you um, and really love you wherever you're at without seeking to progress you from the place that you're in is really important. Yeah. Does that answer the yeah, question? Yeah, so good. Thank you, Jess. Awesome. Nicole? I love what you said, Jess, about, um, you know, your well-being right then and there's at the center of recovery. And I could not agree more. I, I just could not agree more. And in a, it, so many thoughts come to mind, but I would encourage everybody to bring gentleness and kindness around the table of life mm. right there. The gentleness and kindness, you know, in a sense, we can be conditioned to be so harsh with ourselves because, you know, through doctrinal ideas that people often, you know, come up with in these settings, we, we diminish our own feelings, our thoughts, our well-being. And so just to invite gentleness and kindness, just to acknowledge that what happened to you was not okay and it hurt. And as a result of that, you are now living with the effects of a problem that is not you. It's not your problem. But however, the effects, you know, the nightmares, the things that we've talked about mm. are there right now. And it just needs this sort of gentle gaze towards ourselves. And, you know, for, for some people coming out of those spaces, one of the first things they want to do is just to be, and I can't think of a different word, but to be silent. It's like, okay, I just, I just need to earth myself. I just need to, I just need to embody myself again because it's, it's like I've all, almost been in a different alien planet and I'm here now. And it's okay if, if silence is important for you right then and there, you know, trust yourself as the expert of your story. You have the skills and knowledges, actually, even though they've been diminished in that setting, to bring yourself to health and well-being and healing. So if, you know, silence right then is important just to sit for that in that space for a while, so be it. And then, you know, slowly beginning to go through, and like I said, there's so many, there's so much information right now about trauma and trauma recovery, so I won't take up you know, podcast space mm. here. But, you know, what is the path that is opening up for you? What is a healing step that you might take? And, and realizing, and I think this is a part of the healing that is really important, is you're not alone. I know you feel alone and I want to acknowledge that feeling. I want to acknowledge that feeling of isolation when it's like your world has broken down around you and there's still family and friends that you've been cut off and you feel so isolated. And first of all, to acknowledge that, that is, you know, that is what's come to you right now. And also to let you know that there's other people, there's a whole community of people who are experiencing in different stories what you are feeling right now. You are not alone in this space. There's people that are, you know, safe is a word to be 
deconstructed, but there's people who in places that offer us safety. And maybe right now for you, it's a podcast like this mm. one, or it's, um, you know, um, religion shouldn't hurt or teenage fundamental. There's something that connects you and just, okay, you begin to breathe or it's a book or it's, it's just a phone call. Gently and kindly mm. treat yourself with gentleness and kindness. The very thing that was withheld for, mm. from you, mm. you know, begin to walk into that. Um, and then again, I would say if, if you do choose, if therapy is something that you do choose to go down the path, allow to be a ther therapist that centers you as the expert of your story, that puts you central to, to, to what is happening in the room, and that understands religious trauma, that doesn't diminish religion, that doesn't diminish your faith, if you, you, know, if you choose to hold on to faith, but that meets you in that space, that understands that space. And because often, you know, one of the problems we sometimes find in therapy is a therapist who doesn't understand that goes, well, why didn't you just leave? Mm. Not understanding the overwhelming story that we've just mm. spoken about. Mm. So I think that's just something important to add there. Yeah. Um, yes, that's, that's what comes to mind at the moment. But it's just been such a privilege to be here. Michael and Jess, I just, you, you both, Jess, your story, you moved me so deeply and I just really want to thank you both. Mm. Um, Thanks, Nicole. Mm. It's been amazing hearing from you too. It's been really amazing, really validating. I am, yeah, I'm so appreciative to both of you. Um, and um, Nicole, I think the empathy that you've brought um, to this conversation, not just as like the, you know, the expert sort of objectively analyzing <laughs> in, in a sense, do you know what I mean? But, 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 but your heart has come through and, and I have felt that so deeply. I think that the gentleness, the kindness is, and, and that, that phrase you, you said, you know, the very thing that has been withheld from you. I think that's, if we can start somewhere, let it be that. Yes. Um, and Jess, thank you. Thank you for so, um, you know, it's a brave thing to do. And, not not just to, to talk here, although that is a, a brave thing to do, but to walk out the journey in the way that you have as well. And then to be at the point where you're willing to share your story with such insight and um, and kind of wisdom. Um, yeah, it's deeply moving to me. Um, so I know this conversation is going to be um, so helpful to many. So thank you. To, is there is anything burning? Anything burning you feel you have to say before we finish? Um, otherwise we can... We can finish up. Um, I just want to grant permission to anyone who has a similar, can relate to anything that we've shared in this podcast. I just want to grant a grand permission to um, take care of yourself, be gentle with yourself, to love yourself, to validate your own experience. Um, and permission to explore other explore other ways of being in the world because there are mm. so many other ways to express faith and other ways to actually be. Um, and there have been, as we have seen, so many people who are bravely exploring other ways of expressing faith and other ways of being. Mm. Awesome. What a place to finish. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you to you both. Thanks, Michael. So there you go. Uh, that 
was my conversation with Nicole and Jess, and um, I know there's going to be a lot in there for a lot of you. Um, and and I, my real hope is that it somehow meets you where you're at, if that's the conversation you needed right now. I know there are a lot of people processing and trying to figure out how to navigate their way through their experience, and and so uh, I'm really grateful to, to both of these wonderful uh, women who gave their time and their story and their expertise today. Um, thanks as always to Reese Michelle for making the audio signal sound good in your ears. Um, we're going to keep bringing more conversations that we hope will help us all on the journey of this. Until next time. <laughs>